this is the message we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. We're going to continue in our series of John from the letters of John called In the Light. Now, our study guides are going chronologically. As you go through your study guide, the last two pages, you'll see the four pages now. The first two are sermon outline. The next two are study pages uh, for during the week. And the, the study guides uh, go through it chronologically. And so uh, chapter one was a couple of weeks ago, chapter two last Sunday, chapter three this week, and so on. But my messages and the messages of the teaching team, they're going to go all over the place. They go all over the place. The study guide's going to go chronologically through chapter by chapter, but the messages are going to jump everywhere, and, and they're going to be more thematic than they are chronological. And here's why. Let me explain why that is. God's Holy Spirit spoke all 66 books of the Bible uh, through uh, the writers of the Bible. He spoke it through them, the 66 books, but he did not dictate the Bible like you would through a robot. He didn't use these people as robots. He didn't dictate it. He spoke through their individual personalities, through the individual personalities of 40 different authors over 1,500 years, over 40 generations, on three different continents, 16 different countries, and three different languages. And yet what is absolutely miraculous is that in spite of that, over centuries and over 40 different people and over generations and different cultures and different countries, yet in spite of that, the Bible has just one story, one theme, one solution, and one plan of redemption for humanity. It's absolutely uh, miraculous. But it came through the individual personalities and writing styles and the culture and the language of the people that the Holy Spirit was speaking through. Now, for example, if the Apostle Paul had written this letter instead of John, it would have been very orderly and logical, okay? It would have gone point one, followed by point two, followed by point three, four, five. Why does he write that way? Because Paul was a lawyer, and that's the way lawyers write, all right? You've seen a contract. That's how they do it. That's why books like Ephesians and Colossians and First and Second Corinthians, Romans, that's why they're written in such an orderly, logical way. Now, John was a professional fisherman, all right? He, he didn't have a college degree. He didn't have this massive education. He was just an everyday guy, a fisherman. And so he makes five points uh, through this, this letter. But the five points are like all over the place. I mean, if you read 1 John, he does point one, then point two, part of point four, back to point two, now the first part of point three, more about point one. And, and, and so we're following him uh, chronologically in our studies, uh, study guides, but we're following him thematically in our sermons. Uh, one little sidebar on this. This is what makes 1 John uh, challenging for somebody like me to preach because I'm kind of a left brain kind of person. It's funny that all of our teaching team 
uh, come from lawyer families. It's, it's hilarious. When you dig, dig into my family and Pastor Eric's family and Pastor Lisa's family and Pastor Greg's family, they all come from lawyer families. Uh, almost all of us, if we weren't pastors, we would have been lawyers. And so this book has been tremendously challenging to us. None of us on the teaching team are from fishermen families, all right? Um, Tomiko, are you from a fisherman's family? You know, we kind of need that. Your dad was a doctor. Wasn't your dad a doctor? Okay, I don't know if that's going to help us. Doctor, lawyer, same kind of thing. All right, so, but we need somebody from a fisherman family on here. Uh, so this book has been a challenge. So I am going to be using parts of my brain this morning that I don't normally use. As a matter of fact, Kimberly would say there's a high percentage of my brain that I don't always use. But, but bear with me because I'm going to be coming from more of a right brain direction than a left brain direction. Now, so far as we've been studying through 1 John, uh, Pastor Eric and I have been the ones that have been teaching it so far. We've been talking about a certainty in our faith through evidence, objective evidence to the Christian faith. But today, we're going to pivot and talk about certainty in our faith through experience. We're going to be moving from objective to subjective. And even, it's crazy just looking back on it, how the Holy Spirit worked. Even the sermon I did three weeks ago, even before we began the series, fits perfectly into the series because it's all about all the practical, concrete, objective evidence for the Christian faith. And I shared three weeks ago how there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pieces of concrete evidence for the Christian faith, whether it be scientific, whether it be archaeological, historical, whether it be evidence for the resurrection, whether it be fulfilled prophecy, there are just hundreds of thousands of pieces of concrete, objective evidence for the Christian faith. Unlike any other faith, any other philosophy, which may or may not be true, but it's all based on subjectively if you read it and say, okay, that works for me or it doesn't work for me. But they have next to zero, zero or next to zero concrete, objective evidence. There's no evidence for it compared to Christ followers that have literally millions of pieces, if you include every piece of archaeology, literally millions of pieces of objective evidence and fulfilled prophecy, scientific, archaeological, historical, and uh, evidence for the resurrection, and so on. But today we're going to pivot from objective to subjective. And so the big question this morning is, how do you know that your experience with God is genuine? Gaining certainty about Jesus through an experience with him. Now, John talks in chapter 1, this is what Eric covered a couple weeks ago, he talks about objective evidence in verses 1 and 2. He talks about evidence for the resurrection. That which was from the beginning, which we have, and he's talking about Jesus now, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, that is, Jesus appeared. And, and, and he appeared in the resurrection as well. He literally, bodily rose from the grave. We have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you to the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So John says the reason he was sure about his teaching is that he and the thousands of people that at ground zero in Jerusalem, skeptical Jews, as we talked about a few weeks ago, highly skeptical, highly skeptical of, of new truth claims, uh, those that were, were eyewitnesses to the event or knew somebody who was eyewitness to the event. It miraculously explains how uh, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people overnight went from saying, I will never worship anybody but God, never worship a man, 
overnight began to worship the man, Jesus Christ. Just overnight. And the only thing that explains that is the resurrection. So he's saying that John, along with thousands of others, of eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, but he's saying we didn't believe this because we thought Christianity was a superior way to live, even though they did think it was a superior way to live. They didn't follow it because it just made more sense to us than any other worldview or philosophy or religion, even though it did. He says the reason we follow Jesus was because we saw his miracles firsthand and literally with our own two eyes saw him rise from the dead. Now the apostles never attempt to draw their authority from the fact that Christianity is a superior explanation of the world, even though they believed it was a superior explanation. It may be a superior explanation, but that's not where their authority came from. The proof was not in how wise Jesus' teaching was, even though it was the greatest wisdom they had ever heard. And the Bible says the people, when they heard him teach, they were just like amazed and said, we've never heard anything like this. But that's not where their proof, that's not where their authority came from, was in how wise Jesus' teaching was. It was his miraculous power. That's the thing that validated the message. And that's the thing that no other message ever has had except for followers of Christ. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is in John chapter 9 where Jesus heals a blind man. And the Pharisees immediately want to make this into a theological debate. They said, all we do is sit around and debate whose ideas are better than whose ideas, and it's all subjective, there's no objective evidence, we just debate who has the best idea. So they immediately want to make this into a theological debate. And here's what he replied. The man, they drag in the guy as a witness that had been healed of his blindness. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. They were debating, should Jesus have healed on the Sabbath? Uh, they, they shouldn't, he shouldn't, if he's healed on the Sabbath, then he's a bad guy and he's a sinner. He says, I don't care about your theological arguments. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. That's the thing I know. I don't know about all this theological rigmarole and debate that you're having. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Now, I love this quote by J.D. Greer. He says, faith equals the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. Faith, and I'm going to explain what that means in just a moment. Faith is the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. Now, there are a lot of things about Christianity that are hard to believe. We're all friends here. We can be honest with each other, right? How many of you would raise your hand and agree with me on that? There's a lot of things that are hard to believe. There are a lot of things that are confusing. How many of you find anything confusing in, in the Christian faith? Uh, there, there are a lot of Christian claims that will offend you. Okay, let's be all friends here. How many of you have something in the Bible that has ever offended you, okay? All that stuff that, that is unexplainable, okay? But faith happens when the unexplainable meets the undeniable, all right? There are Christian claims that will offend you and will leave you with unanswered questions. As a matter of fact, tonight, we're gonna deal with one of them. Probably the biggest one um, in America today uh, is our messy grace night. Tonight, we're gonna deal with one of those, those biggest things that offends people, that offends us, uh, that leaves us with unanswered questions. But here's, here's the question right here. Are you willing to have the opinions and prejudices about that which is unexplainable about the Christian faith challenged by the undeniable evidence for the Christian faith? Are you willing to have the unexplainable to be challenged by the undeniable? Are you open-minded enough? If you're here, if you're watching online, 
or if you're listening by podcast later on, I, I applaud you. If you are open-minded enough to even be hearing what I'm sharing now, man, you're, you're just like my hero that you'd be willing to listen to this even if you do not yet believe it. Let me just ask you, are you willing to have your questions about things that offend you about following Jesus, that are unexplainable, are you open-minded enough to consider the evidence for Jesus, which is undeniable? The unexplainable meets the undeniable. And here's the biggest decision we all have to make is, do you allow the evidence of the undeniable to overrule your objections of the unexplainable? Or do you invalidate the evidence of the undeniable based on your objections of the unexplainable. Here's another way to put it. Are you willing to doubt your doubts? Now here's a totally awesome illustration, which I love so much, and I hope I'm not the only person in the room that likes this, okay? But I just, I love this illustration right here. They say in sports that uh, hitting a 90 mile an hour or faster fa uh, baseball, hitting a 90 plus mile per hour baseball is considered the hardest thing to do in sports. It's considered the most difficult thing to do in sport. Now, and, and there was this Yale physicist named Robert Adair, and he studied the science behind hitting a baseball. And he wrote a book called The Physics of Baseball. Now here's the bottom line of, of what he discovered. It takes 450 milliseconds to hit a baseball thrown 90 miles per hour. But the ball hits the catcher's mitt in 400 milliseconds. So according to the laws of physics, it is literally, according to the laws of physics, impossible to hit a fastball 90 miles an hour or faster. But here's the thing. How many of you believe it's possible to hit a fastball 90 miles or more? Why? You, you believe it can be done. Why? Because you've seen it done so many times. Okay? If you're an Angels fan, You've seen Mike Trout do it 240 times. If you're a Dodgers fan, last season you saw Mike, uh, Max Muncie uh, do it 35 times. If you're a St. Louis Cardinals fan like me and an Angels fan, you've seen Albert Pujols do it 633 times. Okay, so, so here's the thing. Back to the, quote from, um, back to the quote from J.D. Greer. The unexplainable, according to the laws of physics, it is impossible to hit a fastball 90 miles an hour faster. But the undeniable fact is that millions of us have seen it happen. So the unexplainable is meeting up with the undeniable. And that's what John is saying here. He says there are many things unexplainable about Jesus. But he says, I, I, I have that submit to the undeniable, which is that I and thousands of others have been witness to his resurrection. Now, we move from the objective and the evidential to the subjective and the experiential. And, and, and so, John, we say, John, it's so nice that you got to hang out with Jesus, that you got to have a friendship with him. That's so nice for you, but what good does that do me 2,000 years later? And he says, I am so glad, I'm so glad that you asked. Uh, verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means to experience a relationship with God. And so John says, on top of the objective evidence, 
The undeniable fact, just like the fact that millions of us have seen people hit fastballs more than 90 miles an hour, overcomes our objections about the unexplainable. There's no way uh, to explain that according to the laws of physics. On top of that foundation of the objective and of the undeniable, John wants us to subjectively have the same experience with Jesus that he did. And so the miracles that John saw were a manifestation of the life of God, a life that we can share in. Let me give you some examples. In John chapter 6, uh, the feeding of, of the 5,000, uh, God illustrates his power to feed, uh, to fill spiritual hunger. Uh, St. Augustine once said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. How many of you have had your spiritual hunger filled by God? Well, then you have had koinonia or fellowship with Jesus the same way that John and the people that hung out with Jesus, the apostles, the disciples had. Uh, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Uh, Jesus knew everything about her, all of her deep secrets, but, but he loved her anyway. Despite knowing all of her deep secrets and dark secrets, he loved her anyway. How many of you have ever felt God's love pressing in on you despite your faults and despite your flaws? That here God knows everything about you and yet you sense his love pressing in on you. Then you have had koinonia, fellowship with God, the same way that the disciples and the apostles did. Mark chapter 4, Jesus calming the storm. Uh, has Jesus ever calmed a storm in your life? Or the bigger miracle would be, has he ever calmed you in the middle of a storm? Maybe he didn't change the storm, but he gave you peace within the storm. Then John would say, you have experienced koinonia or fellowship with him, with Jesus, just as much as the early disciples and apostles did. Matthew chapter 9, the woman with constant bleeding. She had a menstrual flow for 12 years. And can you imagine how hard that would make her life, how difficult, how, what an embarrassment that would be. But way beyond that, in, in her culture, uh, she would constantly be ceremonially unclean. That means that no one had touched her in 12 years. And Jesus turns to her and calls her daughter. Calls her daughter. And when he calls her daughter, her soul floods with love and acceptance as God's child, a member of his forever family. Has God ever reached out to you in your loneliness feeling rejected by other people, feeling like you're all by yourself, feeling like you're isolated. Has he ever reached out and touched you and called you son or daughter? You're a member of my family. Then John would say, you have experienced koinonia or fellowship the same way the early disciples did. How about Mark? Uh, the blind man healed in, in two stages. In Mark chapter 8, and uh, Jesus spits on this blind man's eyes. And then he touches his eyes. And the first time, he says, how's, how's your eyesight? And he says, well, I kind of see things real blurry. I see things, men like trees walking around. It's, it's not clear to me at all. And then the, Jesus touches his eyes a second time, and now he can see 20-20. Now he can see clearly. Well, what happened the first time? Were the batteries low the first time? You know, and Jesus, like healing power, do you have to change out batteries? Um, did he shoot an air ball? Uh, why did that happen the first time? Well, Jesus was giving us a picture of how over time he clears up our spiritual vision. Have you ever had this in your life when you first come to Christ and follow him? You understand basic spiritual truths and maybe you experience them the kind of vaguely or somewhat 
But then as you walk with him through the years, he explains more and more of the world to you. Has that ever happened to you? Raise your hand if it has. If that's happened to you, then John would say, you've experienced the koinonia, the fellowship with the Father, with the Son, the same way that the disciples got to experience that. As you experience more and more koinonia and fellowship, it gives you more and more confirmation that your faith is true. But the proof of Christianity does not rest entirely on your experience. Remember that. Uh, the, The objective evidence is the cake. The experience, the subjective evidence, is the icing on the cake. It's the cherry on the top. It's the icing on the cake. It is not the cake. The cake is the objective evidence for the validity of the Christian faith of following Jesus. Now, some Christians will say, oh, Christianity is true. I just feel it. And no one can argue with my experience. You know, I just feel it inside, and nobody can argue with my experience. Sure they can. Uh, Lots of people feel the same way about their religion. Uh, Mormons, even though there's no evidence for the Book of Mormon, there's no archaeological evidence, there's no historical evidence, there's no DNA evidence, there's not a shred of evidence for the Book of Mormon. But they will tell you, read the Book of Mormon, and if as you're reading it, you feel what they call a burning in your bosom, that's evidence that it's true. Muslims feel the same way about the Quran. Buddhists feel the same way about the writings of Buddha. Experiences don't prove it unless they're added to objective evidence. And your experience will never contradict Scripture. The subjective experiences you have will never contradict um, uh, Scripture. As a pastor, uh, through the years, people will tell me stuff like, God told me to leave my wife. And then they'll add something onto it, and this is what makes pastors gray and bald. And, and while I'm at it, it makes them fat, too. I might as well blame that. I'm, I'm just going to blame it all on this. Going to blame it all on, on this. You know, it can't be my fault. It just has to be, uh, you know, just blame it on that. Uh, they'll, they'll say, not only did God tell me to leave my wife, they'll say, I just had, pastor, I just had a piece about it. And I'll say, you know, uh, in the Garden of Eden, Satan's whole strategy was to give Adam and Eve peace about disobeying God so they could damn the whole human race. And so peace is not always a good thing. Feeling peace about something is not always a good thing. But still, even though that's true, um, the, other is, the opposite is not true. You don't want the pendulum to go the other way, that it's all objective evidence. Christianity is more than a head trip. It is very much a taste and see way of life. Uh, Following Christ is to be an experienced walk, not just an intellectual journey. The Holy Spirit will give you this innate sense of God. Um, the, The voice has always been speaking, but when you open up your heart to Christ, suddenly you're given ears to hear it. Uh, John Calvin called this the sensus divinitatis. I've been working on that all morning. Sensus divinitatis. That is the sense of God. Uh, Jesus said it this way in John 10, verse 27. He says, my sheep, in some translation it says, hear my voice. In other translations it says, my sheep hear and listen to my voice. Now you can hear God's voice. I know them and, and I know them and they follow me. And this happens when we come to Christ. We come to Christ because of the objective evidence for the truth of the gospel. But then we are confirmed in that walk as the years go by by subjectively experiencing koinonia and fellowship with him as the years go by. But when we come to Christ, now we're given ears where we can hear his voice. 
uh, Ben and Florence Millard. They're sitting in the, in the back there here at the 945 service. And we had a little luncheon this week to honor Ben. Uh, ben has been the head of our bus ministry for 47 years. For 47 years. Um, and, uh, and he and Florence have been married for 60 years. And here's a picture of them when they were dating here in Pomona uh, back uh, 60 y- years ago. And Ben shared his testimony at, at this luncheon. And he shared about how when he first started coming to our church, and it was the old sanctuary on the corner. How many of you remember that old sanctuary on the corner? When he first started coming there, he didn't know Jesus. He just knew Florence. That's why he was in church. Okay, he wasn't in the church of Jesus. He was in the church of Florence. Okay, was like, uh, he knew her. He didn't, he didn't know Jesus. And at that time, we had a preacher by the name of Harold Fickett, and and through our years, we've had two of the greatest preachers in American history, Ted Cole and Harold Fickett. You can look at their signs there if you want to as you leave today out on on the history and heritage wall. And Harold Fickett was one of the greatest preachers in America at that time, and he was preaching. And Ben said he didn't hear a word Harold Fickett said. Not a word made sense to him. Didn't make a bit of sense. But then one weekend... He goes to a Moody Bible Institute um, movie uh, that shared Christ, and he committed his life to Christ. He said the next time he walked into church, he's like, oh my goodness, this guy is speaking right to me. My goodness, this this guy's really good. He has something I need to hear. What happened? Uh, He could now hear the voice. God gave him the ability to hear his voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Um, you've seen this before. This has been around a million years. There's, there's more modern ones. But uh, how many of you see an older lady in this picture? How many of you see an older lady? How many of you see a younger lady? Let me see. Okay. It's close to half to half. Okay. Now just look at it for a while. There's an older and a younger lady. All right. Uh, the older lady, here's her chin and here's her nose. Can you see her now? If you only saw the younger, can you see, see it? Can you see it now? There's her chin. There's her, there's her, there's her hair. Like that. Okay. Now, how many of you can't see the younger lady? Well, the younger lady, here's her face. There's her eyelash. There's her eye with her eyelash. Uh, she has kind of like a mink stole on or something like that. Um, not politically correct, but this is an old picture, and so she has that on there. Here's her hair with like a feather coming here. Can you see the young lady? How many of you now can see both of them? Let me see your hands. How many of you can see both? Okay. Well, that's the way it is when you come to Jesus. It's like nothing, it didn't make any sense. But now all of a sudden the sheep can hear his, his voice. John Wesley describes becoming a Christ follower. He says, in the evening I went very unwillingly, very unwillingly, to a Moravian society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So this happens at conversion. But it happens again and again the rest of our lives. There are times when God's love just presses in on you. You know, for me, I, I, I experience that often during worship time. That's why I love worship so much, and I'm so grateful for our worship ministry. Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 18, Paul writes, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted 
quick commercial here. <laughs> you know, see it coming, right? <laughs> oh, look, there's the word rooted. 60-second commercial, but we'll be back in a moment from our word from our sponsors. Uh, uh, this is the last day to jump in on a root group. It's just, it's God's providence that you're here today. Because you can sign up. You can walk right out of here in a few minutes when we're done and go to the rooted table and jump into a rooted group. And I tell you, rooted, well over 1,000 people, maybe it's eleven or 1,200 now from our church, have gone through the rooted experience. It's a 10-week experience. And I tell you, so many people have told me, it just fits perfectly with my sermon, that this is when they first experienced God in the way we've been talking about this morning, was through rooted. This was just like a game changer for them. So I encourage you to sign up. And established in love. May have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp. Um, in, the, in, the original, um, uh, in the original Greek that this was written in, it's, uh, this, this Greek word here is katalambano. Katalambano. It's a military word that means literally to seize or to overtake. As in overtaking a fortress and knocking the walls down. Um, he, Paul here is praying that the knowledge of the love of God would attack your hearts, no matter how difficult the fortress might be. Knock down the defenses and penetrate your heart. Catalambano uh, uh, would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now, one word of, of, of caution. Don't compare your experience to someone else's. Okay, some people are just more emotional than others, all right? They're more right-brained, and so don't compare your experience. But on the other hand, we should have a growing fellowship or koinonia with God as the years go by. It should not just be a, a head trip. It should be something that we feel like we're, we're growing in our love relationship with him, our koinonia, our fellowship with him. Uh, Christianity uh, is, is fellowship with God is the point of Christianity, it's not just about memorizing doctrines and mastering spiritual disciplines. It's not just a head trip. God created us to love him and to walk with him. Now, in, in the few minutes we've got left, let's just ask this last question. How can I experience moments of fellowship with God? Uh, number one, you've got to put yourself in the presence of his word. Place yourself, as you're doing, I'm preaching to the choir here, put yourself in the presence of of his word. I love this quote by Martin Luther. Martin Luther writes, the Bible is like a caged lion. If someone doesn't believe the lion is real, don't stand there and defend the lion verbally. Open the cage. Isn't that awesome? Open the cage. Let God's word out and you'll be impressed by the reality of it. Be here on Sunday morning regularly. Don't be like the average church attender in America that attends every other week or every third week or, or once a month. Be here regularly. And after you're done, take your study guide and get your growth binder out in the, out in the lobby and get a hold of your growth binder that looks like this and, and put your study outline uh, into it and then use it during the week for personal devotions and for family devotions and for small groups. Join a rooted group. Go to the Connect Center. Be a part of a rooted group or some other life group. Consistently get your children into Sunday morning kids' ministry, and Wednesday night Awana. Um, you know, some people criticize Awana. They say, and, and let's all, we're all friends here, so let's all do true confession time. Any of you parents that have kids in Awana, how many of you cram the Bible verses on the way to Awana? 
and then they, they say them for their reward, and then they forget them on the drive home afterwards, okay? Uh, anybody part of that support group right there? I, I did that. So don't, that's okay. That God's word will pop out at just the right time in your child's life. You stick it in their heart, it's going to pop out. Boy, I had an example of this this past week. Um, Pamela Barden and I went to Wheaton College the same year, 1978, we graduated. And uh, just a few days ago this past week, she told me about one of our classmates named Dave Bradley. Dave Bradley, uh, here on the left, was one of the greatest sprinters in Wheaton College history. And he was born to missionary parents, Wycliffe Bible translators that would translate the Bible into languages where it hadn't been translated. And, and he, would, uh, he grew up parents that did that in Mexico. And he was a Wycliffe missionary himself. He was kind of like uh, um, the guy from Chariots of Fire, Eric Little. He's kind of a great sprinter who became a missionary his whole life. Um, and this past week, he was in Nairobi, Kenya, where he was working as a missionary. And just a few days ago in Nairobi, Kenya, he dropped dead of a heart attack. And the moment I heard that, like it was over 40 years ago, but the moment I heard that, this verse popped into mind, Acts 4, verse 13. Because I can remember sitting at track practice and him sharing devotions before we went out and had our track practice. I can see the room we're sitting on on campus. I can see where I'm sitting. I can see Dave Bradley, and I can hear him say this verse, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's the power of God's word. Hadn't heard him say that for 40 some years. And boom, there's where it came. You plant it in your children's life, it will come out at the right time. Praise band, come up for our closing song. And two more points. Number two, pray for it. Ask God for it. Say, God, I want to sense your presence more and more in my life. And then number three, just obey. Even if you don't feel like obeying God, just, just obey and the feelings will come later. Just obey. Somebody handed me this after the 8.30 service. They said this was in their boss's office. Behind the boss's desk it says, wanting to is not required. <laughs> when you ask him to do something, you know, and he says, I want you to do this. Uh, and, and he said, just do it. Wanting to do it is not required. And the same thing is true in the Christian faith. Wanting, wanting to do it is not required. You do it even when you don't feel like it, and the feelings will come. John said in 1 John 3, verse 24, he says, those who keep God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. 1 John 2, verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Lord, we thank you so much for the concrete evidence that we believe something that has evidence behind it. We do not believe something that we follow just because it feels good or it seems right, but there are just... So much evidence, your fingerprints all over things like fulfilled prophecy and history and archaeology and evidence for the resurrection and scientific evidence. But oh Lord, we're so grateful that it's not just an intellectual trip, but it is a journey with you hand in hand through life. And we thank you that on top of that objective foundation is the emotional, subjective sense 
of your presence, the koinonia. We get to go through life not alone, but in fellowship, in koinonia with him. And you grow deeper and stronger and more precious to us as the years go by. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, amen. Let's stand up. Let's worship a little bit.